0: with you open up to Psalm 27. We're right in between Ephesians and the Gospel of John. We're going to do a verse-by-verse study starting next week, Lord willing, uh, in the Gospel of John. But this morning I wanted to do one more psalm with you, Psalm chapter 27. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's a very popular uh, psalm. And uh, I've entitled the sermon today. There's some sermon notes for you there in the bulletin if you want to keep uh, notes and kind of keep up with this that way. And the title of the sermon is, One Thing I ask. One thing I ask. Let's look at Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army and camp Against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head will be lifted above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O oh, you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O oh Lord, and lead me on a level path. Because of my enemies, give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning. We thank you for Psalm 27. God, we thank you for a great reminder that it's really one thing we should ask of the Lord. And this shall we seek that we may dwell in the house of the Lord in the presence of you, our living God. And so I pray that today, God, no matter where we are in life, as far as many of us may have enemies that are against us, we may be fearful, fearful of what will come, and yet you've reminded us this morning that you are our stronghold. And so today, God, use this psalm to encourage our hearts help us to put it into practice in how we live our lives. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's only one thing that most businesses are after, and that is money. There's only one thing that most sports teams crave and that is victory. There's only one thing that die-hard romantics are after and that is love. It's only one thing that's supposed to happen in the courtroom and that is justice. There's only one thing that the patriots of the American Revolution desired in winning that war and that was freedom. One thing in each situation in life really is what helps us focus on what we're all about. And so I could ask the question of you this morning, what is that one thing that you would ask of the Lord? If you had the opportunity to ask him for just one thing, what would it be? We see what David asked for here in Psalm 27. He says, verse four, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David wanted to dwell with God. He wanted to be in the presence of his Lord. You know, the idea of one thing is not really foreign to Scripture. There are many texts throughout the Bible that emphasize these exact two words together, one thing. Let me just read five of them to you if I can. The first is between Mary and Martha in Luke 10, 38 and following. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The emphasis again, one thing Mary desired was to be in the presence of the Lord. Another place we read this one thing in the Bible would be about the blind man who said he knew one thing. Listen to John 9:25, and he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This blind man didn't know everything about Jesus, but he knew for a fact that he used to be blind, but now he could see. There's another one thing that Jesus said to the rich young ruler that he must do in order to achieve eternal life. Mark 10, 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus is emphasizing to him, basically, you lack... De- total devotion to Christ. You're still distracted with too many things. Go sell all that you have. That's the one thing that you lack. There is the one thing that was responsible for Paul's arrest in the book of Acts. They had accused Paul of taking a Gentile into the Jewish court at the temple, which was not true, but they had accused him of that. They had arrested him, and then he goes from court to court. And here's what he says in Acts 24:21. He says this, Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In other words, Paul says, look, they may be accusing me of taking a Gentile into the Jewish court in the temple. But the really the one thing of while I've been of why I've been arrested is because of my testimony of the resurrection of the dead. It's testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the one thing that truly got Paul arrested. And then maybe the most famous one thing in the New Testament would be Paul in his book to the Philippians where he writes this in Philippians 3:13, brothers, I do not consider that I have yet made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind is straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul again emphasizes, just one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. I want to see Jesus. I want to be with Christ. So what is the one thing? In your life today, that God would point out to you, maybe there's one specific sin, like what Jesus pointed out to the rich young ruler that is keeping you from tasting the intimate relationship with Christ. Maybe you're here and there's just one thing that's in the way. It could be, again, a particular sin. It could be a certain habit. This morning, we see what David asked for. The one thing his heart desired was to be in the presence of God, to worship him in his temple. And my question would be, can you say that about yourself today? Honestly, one thing, if you were to ask of the Lord, what would it be? Let me give you just a couple of introductory thoughts before we get to our outline about Psalm 27. Uh, we know that Psalm 27 was written by David. If you have the ESV, it says in the superscript of David. If you have an NASB before you this morning, it says a Psalm of David. But if you notice, a Psalm is in italics, meaning it may not be there in the most original manuscripts. And so we know David wrote this Psalm. We know that David uh, wrote it as, as he displays a heart for God, but we don't know exactly when it was written. Some say that it was written when he was on the run from Saul. Others say it was after he was already King David and he's running from his son Absalom. One hint about which one of those two may be more accurate is that if you look at the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it adds to the superscript by saying of David before he was anointed. So there's one clue there, at least in the Septuagint, it says before he was anointed, not referring to before his anointing in Bethlehem, but maybe before his anointing, meaning before he fulfilled the anointing of actually becoming king. And so if that's right, then it's more likely that he was running from Saul before uh, before he ever became king is when maybe this particular psalm was penned. Uh, throughout the sixth month uh, of preparation for Rosh Hashanah in the new year, the Jewish practice is to read Psalm 27 throughout the entire month. It's so important to the Jewish people that they recite this uh, during that special month. It's also to be noted that uh, between the the, uh, the preparation for Rosh Hashanah, again, the new year for the Jewish calendar, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which takes place in the seventh month, there are 10 special holy days set apart, and they're called the Days of Awe. And during those Days of Awe, the Jews to this day would read this particular Psalm is they long to be in the presence of God. there's really only one thing the Jewish mindset is missing. And that is you can't be in the presence of God without Christ. You can't dwell in the temple of God without knowing Christ. You can't be close to almighty God without knowing Christ. And so as you read Psalm 27 this morning, know and understand that for us to apply these principles in our life as new covenant believers, you must think of that as being approaching God through the person and work of Christ. And so let me just break this Psalm down for you if I can in four simple parts as we look at it today. Number one there in your outline is this, be confident in the protection of the Lord be confident in the protection of the Lord. And your first blank would be this, the Lord will deliver you. The Lord will deliver you, verse one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Believe it or not, this is the first time in the Bible where God is referred to specifically as our light. There is no other direct Place in the entire Old Testament where God is referred to directly as light. Now I know you find that hard to believe. The other passages that come close would be Psalm eighteen twenty eight, where it says, For it is you who light my lamp. Psalm one hundred four verse one says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great, you have clothed me with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light. Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 17, the light of Israel will become a fire. Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah again, 60 verse one says, arise, shine for your light has come. Now those are the closest other Old Testament verses that talk about God in a roundabout way as referring to him somehow be associated with light. But this is the only verse in the entire Old Testament, where it specifically says that God is light. And notice in verse 1, not only does it say that the Lord is light, David says he is my light. There is a personal pronoun giving here. David is not referring generically to the God of Israel. He is referring specifically to his God, his deliverer. He has an intimate relationship with God. Which begs the question this morning when you refer to God as you speak of Him with your friends, when you talk of Him in prayer, do you refer to God as this great being outside of your comprehension, which you can only refer to with a third person pronoun? Or do you refer to Him with an intimate knowledge that's been revealed to you by the grace of God where you could say this morning, God is my light. He is my salvation. The word salvation there also a reference to deliverance as David is on the run, possibly from Saul, but he knows that God is his light and that God is his salvation. And again, we see that word light all over the New Testament in the person and work of Christ. John one four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. John one five, the light shines in the darkness. John 8.12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And so today in the New Testament, in the new covenant, we can experience that we have a light, that we have a light in the person and work of Christ, not a generic God out there, not even the Jewish God of yesterday, if you will, but the God of yesterday, today and forever, who revealed himself most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the light. Light gives life. Light provides knowledge and understanding. Light dispels fear. It's in the Treasury of David, Spurgeon's well known commentary on the Psalms, where he writes this quote, After conversion, our God is our joy, comfort, guide, teacher, and in every sense, our light. He is light within, light around, light reflected from us, and light to be revealed to us. David, stating clearly here, God is my light. He is also my salvation. Again, a reference to God being his deliverer. Not only ultimate salvation in heaven, but also practical salvation from the danger he finds himself in. God had delivered David time and time again. God had delivered David from the lion. God had delivered David from the bear. God had delivered David from Goliath. God had delivered David from Saul. God had delivered David from Absalom. He lived a life of deliverance. And he says here in verse 1, it's the Lord who is my stronghold. A stronghold is a refuge. A stronghold is a safe place. It was the Lord who was the stronghold of David's life. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Do you find the Lord today being your light and your stronghold? Do you come to him? Because if you do, then the verse one says, of whom shall you be afraid? Who do you have to fear in this world? You don't have to fear our government. You don't have to fear your coworkers. You don't have to fear your neighbors. You don't have to fear other people in this church. You don't have to fear anybody. If the Lord is your light and your salvation, why would you and I struggle with fear? This is what David is saying in this great Psalm, come to the Lord, let him be your rock and your refuge, come dwell with God, and he will dispel every fear, because we see here that the Lord is our deliverer. Not only that, but in verses 2 and 3, we can say that the Lord will defend you. He will defend you. Verse 2 says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. That word, a cell, means to come near. He's just simply saying, when evil people come near me, they try to devour me, they try to eat up my flesh. It is a dog-eat-dog world. They want to see me stumble. They want to see me fall. The media can't wait to get their hands on another Christian leader who goes down, and they want to eat him up. And yet David says, you know what? As long as I'm walking with the Lord as long as he's my light, and as long as he's my salvation, guess who's going to stumble and fall? According to verse two, it's not going to be me. Not if I'm walking in God, not if he's my refuge, it's they who stumble and fall. They'll get tripped up in their own sin. Their day is coming. It may seem like they're having a lot of fun right now, but at some point the Bible says your sin will what? Find you out. The consequences will come. But for the righteous man, For the woman who walks with Jesus, for the individual who's constantly repenting and putting off sinful practices and replacing it with a heart for God, living at great courage, even in the midst of adversity. You may be in situations when your enemy is against you. In fact, verse three, though an army encamp against me, you may feel sometimes the whole world is against you. You might feel like there's an army outdoor. My my heart shall not fear, David writes. Though war rise up against me yet i will be confident in jesus you have the victory in him you can be confident even if you're outnumbered even if you feel like you're out of ammunition even if you feel like you've taken blows from every side greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world don't be afraid this morning keep trusting in god david faced goliath with a sling and a stone Daniel faced the hungry lions with no weapon at all. Hezekiah faced Sennacherib, and he was greatly outnumbered. But each man looked to God. And in each situation, God defended the righteous man. And he upheld him for his glory, which is why David says here in verse 3, yet I will be confident. He's saying here, I will trust in God. In fact, the verb there to be confident could also be translated as to trust. It's an act of trust he has in God. Are, are you trusting in God today? Are you confident in God today? Do you believe Romans eight twenty eight thirty one today? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. Even if you're just one person, one person with God is a majority. Don't fear today. Come to God and be confident in his deliverance of you. Not only that, but number two, we need to be consumed. Number two, we need to be consumed with the presence of the Lord And the first blank there is seek the Lord. And here's the key verse, if you will, for me at least for this whole psalm. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I think that it's fairly safe to say that the reason that David was so confident in the Lord is because he was so close to the Lord. When you're distant from God, you get worried. When you're close to God, you see his power. When you're distanced from God, you begin to be anxious. When you're close to God, you begin to have great confidence that God will come through. He had a living faith that motivated him to seek the face of God and to seek God's favor. Spurgeon writes here about the fact that David was so focused on the presence of God. He writes this, quote, Divided aims tend to distraction, weakness and disappointment. but the man of one book is imminent. The man of one pursuit is successful. Let all our affection be bound up in one affection, and that that affection set upon heavenly things. Are you divided this morning? Too many affections for too many things? Or could you say honestly, just one thing I ask of you, Lord. This I shall seek, that I could dwell in the house of the Lord. I mean, David could have asked for anything. But instead, he just asked for one thing, and God gave him everything. And as you start by seeking first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33, and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you right it's not the things that god gives us that we ought to be seeking ultimately it's god himself it's not the hand of god that we should seek it's his face it's not the gifts of god that we long for it's his glory it's not the action of god that we desire to see it's his attributes we just want to see god that's what david said i just want to be with you lord I don't care about anything else. Just give me you. I want to be in the presence of God. And notice how David writes that not only is he asking for that, according to verse 4, he's also seeking for that. This is not some passive, just God, show me your glory, and he sits back and does nothing. Verse 4 again says, I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after there's action in David's heart pursuing the glory of God. And sometimes I think we're a little bit too passive about pressing in to the presence of God. And we think, well, if God wants to show up, he will. But if he doesn't, I guess I'm on my own. And it's like, no, we pray and ask for the presence of God. But we also are, are uh, actively seeking after God. And you say, well, how, Adam, how, how do you seek after the presence of God? I would say you seek after the presence of God by seeking the word of God, by seeking the person of God in Jesus Christ, by seeking times of prayer with God, where you're not only just asking kind of in a passive mindset, but you're balancing that with seeking after God. So important for us, I think, as Christians to know that There's got to be some some asking, but there also needs to be some clawing to get in. We have to fight, in a sense, against the distractions of this world to be in the presence of God. David uh, was not a priest. He was not a son of Korah. His job was not to tinker with the things in the temple. And yet he wanted to be so close to God. He wanted to be close to the Ark of the Covenant. He wanted to see the cherubim. He wanted to be near God. That's where he longed to be. And you know, We think about so many things in this world, whether it's going to a concert or to a ball game or to a movie or whatever, and you're just like, "Man, I just want to get in there. I want to see this movie. I've got to see the game. I want to be down there on the field and give a high five to the quarterback when he throws the touchdown. I mean, that's how we feel, right? Sometimes in our culture, if you're passionate about something, and David is like, "No, no, 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 forget all that. I just want to be with God." I want to be in the presence of God. God, bring me in closer and closer. David delights in God. I think we see that also in the Psalms as we talk about delighting in the law of the Lord. The presence of God is in the word of God and in the person of God. And listen to these psalms. Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord in which he meditates day and night. Psalm 119-15, I meditate on your precepts and I fix my eyes on your ways. Psalm 119-97, oh how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Psalm 119, 163, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Verse 165 of the same psalm, great peace have those who love your law. Do you love the law of God? What is the law of God? I believe they're a general reference to the word of God. Everything revealed to us in scripture. Do you long to be in the presence of God? To inquire upon the Lord means to seek him, to meditate on him. Do you want to be with God? Do you want to see him? Do you want to hear from God? Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I think that's on display in verse four. In verse five, your next blank, David's also encouraging us, I believe, to trust the Lord. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And so David knows that when he is in the presence of God, he is protected from his enemies. When he's in the presence of God, he is protected from his fears. And he desires to be in the presence of God. We know that the weights of the world nearly crush us. When those times come, what do we do? Hopefully we run to the Lord, right? We don't run first to set up all of our defenses. Hopefully we run to Christ. We run to God who is our defense, who is our shelter, who is our safe place. Not only will God hide us in the shelter of his tent, he will lift us up upon a rock. I love Psalm 28, uh, the very next Psalm, verse 1. It says, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. And so here in verse twenty, chapter 27, but again in chapter 28, he refers to God as his rock, that God places us on a rock. Yes, he protects us and he hides us from the enemy, but he also sets us up upon a rock. Listen to Psalm 61, verse one and following. It says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Take, uh, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. It's just a refreshing mindset here, that God is our protector. He defends us. He delivers us. And see there in your outline is we should focus on worshiping the Lord. Worship the Lord. There in verse 6, it says, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tents sacrifices. With shouts of joy, I will sing and make melody to the Lord." We see here three ways that David worships God. Just here in verse six, he worships God with shouts of joy. He worships God with singing and making melody in his heart to the Lord. And he worships God by making sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, What a great reminder that if we wanna be worshipful to God, we're making sacrifices, giving of our time, giving of our resources, saying no to the things of this world, sacrificing earthly pleasure for eternal satisfaction in God and we see David worshiping him with shouts of joy and again singing and making melody to the Lord you know it ought to be just a a sweet song in our heart through the day God I just worship you I exalt you I, I praise you there ought to be hymns of the faith and worship songs that you enjoy that you're just humming and thinking about as you're constantly communing with God the third heading that I want to give you this morning, number three is this, be certain about the preservation of the Lord. And in verses 7 through 13, the psalm kind of takes a little bit of a change here. The first blank here into this section would be, the Lord will hear you. The Lord will hear you. There's a significant mood change between 1 through 6 and 7 through 14. In fact, some have speculated that this would actually be two different psalms. But we know that there's enough literary and rhetorical and other content evidences that would really support the unity of one psalm. But notice here in verses 7 and eight, he says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And so we see that the voice that shouts and sings to him in worship in verse six can now be confident that the Lord will hear that same voice as we pray. Speaking to the Lord means seeking the Lord. David is speaking to him and he's seeking him out. And notice how God had commanded, apparently, he says, uh, verse eight, seek my face. Your heart, uh, excuse me, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? So David's simply saying, look, you commanded that I should be seeking you. I am Lord. I'm seeking you with all my heart. And so he's pleading to the Lord here that God would hear his prayer in verse seven and eight and verses nine and 10. We could say the Lord will care for you. Not only will the Lord hear you verses seven and eight, but verses nine and 10, the Lord will care for you. Listen to these two verses. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And so we see here again, he has great confidence in the care of the Lord. He pleads to the Lord, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not leave me or forsake me. You are my God. His doubt is quickly swallowed up in faith when he says, O God of my salvation, Some have speculated whether or not Jesse, David's father, abandoned him at some point, or whether his mom, who's not really mentioned in scripture, somehow abandoned David because of verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Others say this could be translated if my father and mother left me. In other words, if the two people I'm closest to in the world, at least as a child, were taken from me, the Lord is my father comfort. The Lord is my heavenly father. You you know, few things scare a child more than the thought of becoming an orphan. I mean, I remember as a kid myself thinking if my mom and dad were out too late and they hadn't returned yet from a a trip or from a a date night, I'm like, oh man, what if they died? I'm going to be an orphan. What would I do? Where would I go? And every child has had that fear that enters into their heart. And we're reminded that with one of the greatest fears of life, that you would be left alone as an orphan, that the Lord will not forsake you. He will take you in. Or maybe you're here today and your parents are forsaking you because of sin in the relationship and there's conflict and you haven't talked to your mom and dad in years. You've been ostracized from the family. So many families go through relationships like that where they haven't have no meaningful relationship with their mom and dad, well, don't fear. Today, the Lord will take you in. He will be there for you. He will care for you. And not only that, verses 11 and 12 says, he will guide you. He will guide you. Verse 11 and 12, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a path, a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen up against me and they breathe out violence. And so David is saying here, God, would you just guide me in your way? Would you let me live uh, my life in a way that would honor you? Keep me on a level path. That prayer for a level path has the idea of an upright path. He doesn't want to stumble and fall. He wants to walk uprightly even in the midst of adversity. David is looking for a firm and a secure way uh, to walk without falling into the crookedness of sin. Uh, I love how Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases this verse this way. He says, Show me my enemies, excuse me, show my enemies whose side you're on. Don't throw me to the dogs, those liars who are out to get me, filling the air with threats. You ever been like that? You ever been in a situation where everybody is literally out to get you? They want you to go down. They want to defame your name. They tell lies about you that are not true. David says, trust the Lord. He will care for you. He will guide you. He will put you in a level path. Keep your eyes on the Lord because the last part of this point would be the Lord will sustain you. Verse 13, the Lord will sustain you. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David is convinced that he will be with God forever. How awesome it is that we can pray these words in full confidence, absolute faith and complete certainty because the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, prayed such a prayer on the cross as his enemies surrounded him, slandered him and violently took his life. In many ways, Jesus embodied this psalm for us. Listen to how Jesus Praise in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And so while I'm not saying that this psalm is all about Christ directly, we understand that Jesus lived through many of the same persecutions, many of the same defamant that, 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 Paul, that uh, David went through, and Jesus came out on the other side trusting God, praying to God as him who lived, lived in the land of the living, right? Jesus embodied the psalm in this way. He was the greater example of one who was lifted up above his enemies, of one who did walk on the level path, of one who does live in the land of the living. You know, when I went down to pray with Judy Severance, Last week, right before she went into heart surgery, I read her this psalm. And as I read her this psalm, I got to verse 13 about li- living in the land of the living. She stopped me and she asked me, Adam, what is that talking about? Is that talking about like the here and now? Or is that talking about heaven forever? What-, what is the land of the living? And I gave Judy the answer I give so many if I haven't really studied it much. I'm like, well, Judy, it's probably a little bit of both. You know, a little bit of both. Like right now, we are in the land of the living. If you're in Christ, you have eternal life. You have the abundant life right now, but ultimately that, that eternal life is, is forever in heaven. And I still think that's a fair, um, a fair assessment of that verse. I, I did study it a little bit more, and if I was to be convinced that it's talking specifically about heaven and not just life here on earth, even if you're in Christ, I would be convinced by Richard Baxter uh excuse me not richard baxter the well-known puritan who wrote *Reformed pastor his name is actually richard baker i would be convinced by richard baker this is what he writes on this particular phrase the land of the living he writes this and he takes the view it's talking about heaven he says alas what a land of the living is this in which there are more dead than living more under the ground than above it where the earth is fuller of graves than houses where life lies trembling under the hand of death and where death hath power to tyrannize over life no my soul there is only one land of the living where there is none but the living where there is a church not a militant one but a triumph one a church indeed but no churchyard because no are, no one is dead there nor are there any who die where life is not passive nor death active, where life sits crowned and where death is swallowed up in victory. Appreciate that perspective from Puritan Richard Baker again, that the land of the living is a place where there's no more death. Where, oh death, is your sting? And so David has ultimate trust in God that he will live with him in the land of the living. And this leads us to our final heading here, number four, be convinced in the promises of the Lord. Be convinced in the promises of the Lord. Real simple. Wait for the Lord. Don't just wait passively, but we must wait in the Lord's strength. Your next blank. We must wait in the Lord's courage. We must again, wait for the Lord and waiting on God is not easy. Waiting for the Lord in a time of difficulty is not a pleasure. Waiting on the Lord must be us being strengthened by God and taking great courage in God. And before we get to the take-home part of the sermon, i, I got to take a little bit of time, maybe a five-minute illustration that I think is a modern-day application of Psalm 27 in the life of the World War II missionary Darlene diabler Rose. Her story, in so many ways, is a fulfillment in practical application of the principles of Psalm 27. Listen to it, if you will. Darlene and her newlywed husband, Russell, served as missionaries in Papua New Guinea in 1938. In due time, World War II broke out and the Japanese invaded that corner of the world and took many prisoners of war, including Darlene and her husband. Four years later, in 1948, their island had been taken by the Japanese and the Japanese soldiers led them uh, to to a camp, a prisoner of war camp, where they were together for a while until one day they suddenly came and they took all the men to a different place. Russell, her husband's last words to Darlene were this, quote, "'Remember one thing, dear. "'God said that he would never leave us or forsake us.'" And she never saw her husband again. The women were eventually taken to a different prison camp, and there they met the camp commander, Mr. Yamaji, who was notoriously cruel— Yet God gave Darlene some measure of favor in his eyes. When the news came that her husband Russell had died, Mr. Yamaji called Darlene to his office and trying to encourage her somewhat, that God then gave her the grace to look at him and give him her gospel testimony. She said, Mr. Yamaji, I don't hate you, I love you. And the only way that I can love you is because when I was a little girl in the Midwest, Jesus Christ changed my life. And because of my sin, I deserve death. And yet he's given me heaven. I came to Japan to tell these precious people about the love of Christ. And I'm here today to tell you about this message of the love of God for you. Well, tears started coming down Mr. Yamaji's face and he left the room and he went into the room next door and she heard him sobbing as he was blowing his nose and tears continuing to flow. He had obviously been touched by this testimony of the gospel. A little bit later, she got up and left the room. And sometime later than that, Darlene was arrested by the secret police and taken to another prison camp, more intense this time, where they were going to interrogate her. The conditions were horrible, to say the least. And Darlene also suffered from dysentery, a dysentery cerebral malaria, and beriberi. One day, she saw out of her window someone secretly passing bananas to one of the other women. And since she was in solitary confinement, she had to pull up just to see this going on. And she wanted these bananas for herself, right? She had been eating rice with just a little bit of porridge for years. And here's what Darlene wrote in her well-known autobiography entitled, Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II. Here's what she writes. I dropped to the floor of my cell exhausted from my efforts, I shook all over. Worse still, I began to crave bananas. Everything in me wanted one. I could see them. I could smell them. I could taste them. And I got down on my knees and said, Lord, I'm not asking you for a whole bunch like that woman has. I just want one banana. I looked up and pleaded, Lord, just one banana. Then I began to realize, how could God possibly get a banana to me through these prison walls? I I, I would never be able to ask the guard if he helped me and it was discovered he would be punished. There was more of a chance of the moon falling out of the sky than one of them to bring me a banana. I bowed my head again and I prayed, Lord, there's no one here who could get a banana to me. There is no way even for you to do it. Please don't think that I'm not thankful for the rice porridge. It's just that, well, those bananas looked so delicious. What I needed to do was to link my impotence to God's omnipotence. But I couldn't see how God could get a banana to me through those prison walls. The next day, Darlene experienced a surprise visit from Mr. Yamaji from the former prison camp, and when Darlene saw Mr. Yamaji, she wrote this, I clapped my hands and exclaimed, Mr. Yamaji, it's it's just like seeing an old friend. Tears filled his eyes. He didn't say a word, but he turned and he walked out into the courtyard and began to talk with the two officers who had conducted the interrogations. Finally, Mr. Yamaji came back to my cell. You're very ill, aren't you? He asked sympathetically. Yes, sir, Mr. Yamaji, I am. I'm going back to camp now. Have you any word for the women? The Lord gave me confidence to answer. Yes, sir. When you go back, please tell them that I'm all right. I'm still trusting the Lord. They'll understand what I mean. And I believe you do too. All right, he replied. Then turning on his heels, he left. And when Mr. Yamaji and the other officers had gone and the guard had closed the door, then it hit me. I, I didn't bow to those men. Oh, Lord, I cried. Why didn't you help me? Remember, they'll come back and beat me. Lord, please, not back to the hearing room again. Not now, Lord. I can't. I just can't. I heard the guard coming back. And knew he was coming for me. Struggling to my feet. I stood ready to go. He opened the door. Walked in. And with a sweeping gesture. Laid at my feet. Bananas. They're yours. He said. And they're all from Mr. Yamaji. I sat down in stunned silence. And counted them. There were 92. Bananas. In all my experience spiritually, I've never known, this is what she writes after that, I've never known such shame before my Lord. I pushed the bananas into a corner and wept before him. Lord, forgive me. I'm so ashamed. I couldn't trust you enough to get even one banana for me. Just look at them. There are almost a hundred. In the quiet of the shadowed cell, He answered back within my heart, that's what I delight to do. The exceeding abundantly above anything you ask or think. I knew in those moments that nothing is impossible to my God. What a great faith that Miss Darlene Rose had. What a great example of the application of Psalm 27. When she was in the midst of her worst place, she continued to seek the Lord. She waited on the Lord. She took heart and had great courage in him. Maybe this last take-home section will give you reason to think a little bit more. Is the Lord your light in salvation today? You can't trust in God and be delivered from the evil one if you're not walking in the light And in the deliverance of our Lord, do you know the Lord today? Can you say honestly that he is your light and your salvation? Number two, are you asking for and seeking the presence of God? Would you be one who's just asking but not seeking? Or is there a balance to how you ask, but you also seek to be in the presence of the Lord by being in the word of God and spending time in prayer with him? And then number three, how are you waiting on the Lord? What what does that look like in your life? Are you desperate for him? And are you patient? Are you taking heart and courage waiting on the Lord? And in the meantime, just saying, God, just one thing I ask, that I could dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just Psalm 27. God, thank you that Psalm 27 could only be fulfilled in our life through the person and work of Christ. Thank you for the testimony of that sweet missionary lady who demonstrated trust in you in the most perilous of times. God, be with our people today as we have many who are struggling, many who are suffering, many who may be struggling with fear. And today, God, may we come to you as our light and our salvation just one thing that we ask of you God allow us to dwell in your temple to gaze upon your beauty all the days of our life in Jesus' name we pray amen well as